0: From Kurtco Media.
1: There's no place like Hollywood.
0: Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I'm virtually sitting down with two incredible guests, Alan Ball and Stephen Root. Alan Ball is the Oscar-winning screenwriter of American Beauty and the creator of several series, including Six Feet Under, True Blood, and Here and Now. Stephen Root is an Emmy-nominated prolific actor known for his character work in projects such as Barry, Office Space, Perry Mason, The Man in the High Castle, News Radio, and King of the Hill. And you'll get to experience both of their talents in the upcoming film, Uncle Frank. Alan and Steven, thank you so much for joining me. Our pleasure.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to be here.
0: I know it's been a really crazy time, but how are you both doing in this time of election and quarantine and all of the madness that's been going on?
1: I have days where I feel like I have gone crazy, but I had those before quarantine, so it doesn't worry me that much. But I'm really ready for all of this to be over. I know it's not going to be anytime soon, but I feel like I've had it. I've had it with this fucking year.
2: (laughs) I think that's fair. Yeah, I can get rid of this year without a problem at all. I feel very lucky that I have enough space to, you know, walk around the neighborhood and not be completely confined. Like, I have an apartment in New York, that I, you know, I can't go there. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel very lucky to be able to move around here in L.A.
0: Uncle Frank is coming out on Amazon Prime on the 25th, and I'm sure releasing a film at this time is adventure all to itself. So where did it start? How did you create this project, Alan, and how did you get involved, Stephen?
1: 30 years ago, I was living in New York City and I went home to my hometown of Marietta, Georgia to come out of the closet to my mother. And when I did, she grabbed her head like if she didn't hold on to it, it was going to shoot off into space. And she said, oh, God has dealt me some blows in this life, which I started laughing at because I didn't know how else to respond to that. And then she said, well, I blame your father for this because I think he was that way too, which was news to me. I don't know if it's true. My dad was already dead. But the next day we were driving around North Georgia visiting relatives and we drove past a lake and she said, oh, that's where Sam Lassiter drowned. And I said, who's Sam Lassiter? And she said, he was a real, real, real good friend of your daddy's. And I just sort of went, wait a minute, what? And it opened a window in my consciousness of what if, what if that were my father's story? What might that have been? And it sort of percolated for about 25 years. And then four or five years ago, I sat down to write a script. And Uncle Frank is what came out.
0: No, Frank was your father's name. Is that right? Yes. So was this kind of for him or anything like that?
1: My dad was a guy who he was distant. And I always felt like there was a sort of secret tragedy that he was carrying around with him. Years before, I had this conversation with my mother. It's hard to say it's an homage to him because it might be completely made up and it might have nothing to do with his actual experience, but it is a story of what might have happened. And so I guess in that way, it is a tribute to him because whatever he went through, whatever it was, that secret tragedy that I sensed, I guess it was my way to try to make sense of it and dramatize it.
2: What drew me to anything now in this part of my career is a great script. And I thought this was a great script. And I heard who was involved. There's a couple of people I didn't know their work so much, but I had worked with several other people. I'd done a play with Lois. I'd worked with Steve and Just the fact that all these people got together to do this beautiful little movie, I mean, I couldn't resist that. And being able to do kind of a version of my dad who was, you know, a Wyoming cowboy whose parents got killed early and he had to be raised by his uncles. So he was kind of a hard guy. So that the scene where you're seeing him in the living room, that was part of my life. He would blow up like that.
0: And was that your impression the first time you read the script?
2: As a character actor, you're standing there with your mouth open unless you have a really good script. And I've come to appreciate it more and more as I've aged. If you have a base of good writing, then you can go from there and expand and have play and take different levels and colors to your performance.
0: And Alan, what made this the right time to write this script? Or what kind of triggered this that two decades later, that's what came out?
1: I was ready. My process is very mysterious to me. It's very organic and subconscious and doesn't always go anywhere productive. (laughs) But uh, when it was time to sit down and write it, and that's what came out. In terms of what made now the right time for the movie to be made and released, it's because Miramax said, yes, we'll pay for this.
0: (laughs) That always helps. Did you already have Stephen in mind?
1: Well, you know what's interesting? I don't write with actors in mind because when I'm writing, the characters seem real enough to me. But then once it's time to cast, once we had Paul and Peter and Sophia, I sat down and looked at the remaining cast and I basically said, if I could have my wish list of actors to play these roles, who would it be? And then I sent emails to their agents and asked them to pass on the script and every single person said yes. And I'm lucky enough to have worked with Stephen before. And I'm such a fan of yours, Stephen. I think you can do anything. Back at your call. <laughs> I've just seen you over the years and I just think you're so gifted and I knew that you would be amazing in this role. And I'm so glad that you said yes.
2: Oh, I'm so glad I did as well. We shot in a beautiful place, in North Carolina. And it was just one of those very short shoots If the people are great, you have a ball. And all the people were great and going for the good, going for the good of the movie.
0: Stephen, what would you say is Alan's directing style?
2: (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) It was very collaborative. If you had a different rhythm maybe in mind for a couple of things in a scene, he he was very amenable to letting you go there, which I did a couple of times. But very low-key. I mean, like you said, he got the people that he wanted to get. I think 90% of it sometimes is correct casting. Then you get to just nudge. And uh, Alan nudged well.
0: (laughs) So in that nudging then, Alan, what would you say it's like working with Stephen as an actor?
2: Well,
1: it's great. You basically just point a camera at him and let him go. And then I like to have options in editing. So I'll throw out, well, this time, maybe this or this time, maybe that. But I love actors. I wanted to be an actor for the longest time before I realized I was a better writer. And that's probably what I should do. But I love working with actors because I know that actors make my work look good especially a movie like this is really about the characters and about the actors and their performances. And in terms of directing, I just basically throw ideas out sometimes just to give myself options in editing. But for the most part, with a cast like this and with Steven in particular, you just make sure that he's well lit and you you (laughs) put
0: the camera at him. Do you each have a favorite day or a favorite moment on this set?
2: You know, we did one of these last week and Paul brought up something I thought was really important is we did a scene in front of the house, an outdoor scene, didn't really make it into the movie, but it was a family scene around eating and food. And just playing that scene, you got everybody individually right there. And doing that scene made us a family, I think. So it was really important. Even though it wasn't in the movie, it made us really
0: close. When you're on location like that and you're kind of there as a family, are you a family the whole time? Do you hang out outside of set or is it kind of you got to go to work and then you have to go home and rest so you don't die during the shoot?
2: I have to tell Alan, we had the greatest time at the little holiday in We would go down there after shooting day and have some cheese and a glass of wine. And it was like being on vacation. I tended to go
1: straight home after work and go to sleep immediately because I'm an old man now and, you know, I can't party the way I used to. I heard some stories about Margot and Lois, though. I was
2: going to say, you know Lois Smith is a party animal.
0: <laughs> Alan, did you have a favorite day on set?
1: Oh my God, there were so many favorite days. Every day was a joy, was a treat. Maybe the process trailer days and when they were driving the car, all the road trip stuff. We had the worst process trailer in the United States, I believe, but it was the only one that was available in Wilmington. And so every time we had a car scene, it looked like they were driving through an earthquake. Oh no. (laughs) I loved the birthday party scene. I loved the scene between young Frank and Daddy Mac that's so painful where Daddy Mac, that single tear goes down your cheek, Steven. I loved the scene of Beth's family having dinner at Frank's apartment with Frank's fake girlfriend. I loved the whole party scene in New York. The whole thing was a treat for me and it was a high point in my career and in my life and I'll always treasure it.
0: I want to jump back to your early days. Each of you kind of started in theater, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I did, yes.
0: Do you think that shaped your career path or the way you approach your work?
2: Very much so for me. Yeah, me too. You learn discipline and how to recreate a performance without out to be exactly the same, because you have to do it every night. You learn to react, which is acting. You learn to react. And that was paramount to me. Starting with Shakespeare was paramount to me. I got to be in the National Shakespeare Company for a couple of years in New York back in the late 70s, which took us all around the country doing three plays. So that was my real training ground. Now a lot of actors are coming up through improv and that's a different thing. It's harder for me because I didn't come up through it. But I really appreciated the Discipline Theater
0: gave us. What made you make the switch to film and TV?
2: They offered me a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had a family to support and everything. So I, after a two-year job on the road in theater, I landed in L.A. and knew that the casting directors here had seen the work. And I, I figured I could probably work right away, which I was lucky enough.
0: And what about you, Alan? Why switch from playwriting to TV?
1: Same. I got a job offer. I had written a play that was produced off-off-Broadway in New York called Five Women Wearing the Same Dress. It was about bridesmaids at this wedding in Knoxville, Tennessee. And a talent scout from Carsey Warner TV saw it and they offered me a job on a situation comedy called Grace Under Fire. And I figured, how many times is this going to happen? Might as well see where it takes me. And I moved from New York and moved out here.
0: Five women wearing the same dress was one of our favorites in acting school because it had so many great female parts. A lot of for women. Yeah, yeah that exactly. was rare, you know? <laughs> so thank you for that. Of course.
2: Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars that matter, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You won an Oscar for writing American Beauty, and I'm sure that was world-changing for you. I'd love to hear a little bit about that experience and what you learned from that.
1: Well, it was fascinating because American Beauty, when we were making it, everybody thought, oh, well, that's like a little art house movie that Steven Spielberg likes, and nobody thought it would become what it became. In fact, I remember the DreamWorks marketing people saying, how the hell are we going to market this? It's so dark. (laughs) I was like, is it really that dark? But then it became this juggernaut, and then they assigned a publicist to me, and all of a sudden, I was going around and being on panels, and it was surreal. At the event itself, I was drunk because that's the only way I could get through it. I had a flask in the pocket of my tuxedo. And I remember when they called my name, I don't remember walking up there. I don't know how I got on that stage. It was a complete out-of-body experience. I'm glad it happened, of course, but in terms of was it a moment of personal triumph and feeling, no, I felt like I might throw up or something.
0: Well, congratulations on not doing that. (laughs) You guys both have mastered dark comedy, it appears. Do you feel like you're drawn to that more than other genres?
2: I've always liked twisted stuff. I've never enjoyed just doing a straight book role. Since the beginning, I've wanted to just twist it a little bit to make it interesting. I've been more drawn to those projects. And sometimes it's crazy guys, like the guy in office space and Sometimes it's just a little subtler, like weirdo in uh, news radio who's a billionaire, and you don't know whether he's an idiot or an idiot savant. I don't want you to know. Exactly. <laughs> I like the idea of just a little twist.
0: Is that similar for you, Alan?
1: Yeah, I have a tendency to want to pick up the rug and look under it and see what's there. I've always been that way. It's just a morbid curiosity, maybe. But it's also difficult for me to work on something that doesn't have humor as an intrinsic part of it because I feel like that kind of helped me survive my life. And it's such a fundamental part of my perspective on life that I can't write something that doesn't have some jokes in it.
0: Speaking of dark comedy, I just want to jump to Barry for a second because it's one of my favorite shows the past several years. I would love to hear more about it and what the experience is like on that set. I
2: had never worked with Bill Hader, and he called me in kind of late in that audition to come in and do it. And the role that I went in for wasn't initially to be what it turned out to be. We shot the pilot with his mentor being me, the guy who sends him out on missions, a very overblown, screaming guy. And while it was fun to do, there was no place to go with him after the pilot. So Bill and Alec kind of reimagined it into more of a father figure, a bad father figure. <laughs> but one who had his complete trust and all of his self-worth was involved in this guy, and he's a bad guy. So that was more fun to start at three, and then you realize how bad he's getting, and then he goes to 11. And can fluctuate, because the writing in that show, I think, is great as well. We were lucky to have some great directors along the way. but. To me, it's always more fun kind of to play that villain character. But as Alan says, there is some part of him that is human and you see it.
0: I know you guys had your season three table reads right before the shutdown. Has there been any movement at all?
2: We're looking at next year sometime because Bill is involved in other movies and projects and stuff. So it's kind of up to his schedule. But we will be back. (laughs) I promise you we will be back.
0: I will be waiting with bated breath.
2: <laughs> Thank you. You love doing it. And all the people are, we're still very close.
0: I do want to talk very briefly about the season two, episode five, Madhouse of the feral child fighter girl. She was
2: amazing, wasn't she? she she's, she's the daughter of a son. And she, that was her first thing. But she had always been taekwondo and all this stuff. And she was unbelievable. She did all her own stunts. If you saw it, it might've looked like A tree later in in the process, but she did leap up on things up under the roof. Oh, wow. She was incredible. Bill and Alec decided that was too hard an episode to shoot in the regular order of things. So we just skipped it and we shot it as the last show, knowing that it would be technically difficult, which it was. But I'm so glad we waited because we were able to take our time with it. It was a lot of night shoots and it was hard, but it was, as with that cast, as with this cast, it's always fun.
0: Having that be her first thing, the scene where she literally attaches herself to your face with her teeth. <laughs> what what
2: was that shoot like? We actually tried that a couple of different ways. We had her just start there and then maybe we thought we'd reverse the camera and come back that way. But we tried that a couple of times. That seemed kind of weird. And Bill said, well, just what would you do? And, and she did it the first time. And that was the take, which was great. And Bill directing that episode, I think he won for that episode was phenomenal. This is what he has been wanting to do. I mean, he didn't come to town to be an actor. He came town to be a director because he's a filmophile and he loves it and he's getting to do what he wants to do. So I'm really happy for
0: him. Okay. I'm going to jump all over the timeline here. And I do want to visit True Blood because that was such a great show. Talk about fun and dark. (laughs) How did you go the places you went? I don't even know where to begin with this. (laughs)
1: You know, it's based on a series of books. And so a lot of that stuff, we just took directly from the books. But I had a great staff of writers on that show. And we literally just let our imaginations run wild. And it was the first time I'd ever been involved in something that was so genre specific. And it was really freeing to go there.
0: Was there anything in the middle of that shoot, kind of looking at yourself like, I can't believe we decided to go here? Or,
1: Yeah, there was a scene where Bill's vampire maker, Lorena, had done something horrible and she was trying to seduce him. And so they ended up having hate sex <laughs> But because they were vampires. He sort of took her head and like twisted it around. And I remember thinking, wow. <laughs> and then later I found out that the National Organization of Women was all prepared to send out a press release about how missile misogynistic and hateful that was. But for some reason, it didn't get any traction.
0: I'd love to talk about your turn on it, Stephen, because that was the first time I recognized you as an actor and went back and was like, oh, you're in all these things that I love. I think True Blood is where I realized that you're the person I'm a fan of in all of these roles.
2: I appreciate that. Thanks. It was the first time I played a gay character and it was really fun to take up that challenge i remember coming down the stairs in the first scene and just flipping my head around and this is going to be fun (laughs) 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 but it was difficult in the sense that i did a lot of head acting because i was mostly on that chair but i loved it because it was such a great part such a well-written
1: part he was so sweet and so kind he was a sweet guy really horrible what they did to him
0: it was terrible and I exploded. That's true character work, making yourself explode, you know. <laughs> I'm hoping one day
2: to have a whole reel of my deaths.
0: <laughs> What's the best death you've ever had?
2: Probably that one. But in one bad horror movie, I got strawed to death in the face. A scarecrow took his, took his and, <sighs> and things. Oh! face. <laughs> Terrible movie. Awful, but really fun. Which movie was that? Oh, you don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible movie. But yeah, being exploded and getting strawed to death in my face.
0: So, Alan, I know that your process, you've said you kind of like to sit down and write and see where the story goes. You prefer not to outline or anything like that. How does that work when working in TV with a room of writers?
1: It doesn't. In TV, you have to outline. Unless, I guess, if I were to sequester myself in a cabin in the woods somewhere for six months and write every script, it might work. But chances are they wouldn't be very good. You have to outline in television because you're giving an outline to somebody and sending them off to write it.
0: But even with that, you prefer when you're writing a film. Is there a reason behind that being your process or why that works better for you?
1: It just seems to be what has worked. It doesn't always work. I have plenty of scripts that I've started. I have plenty of files that are like 30 pages that I sort of run into a dead end of like, well, I don't know where to go with this. But I'm able to do it with an outline in a TV show. I don't know why, maybe it's just a lack of self-discipline that I can't really do it when I'm writing a feature. But I like that idea of not knowing where it's gonna go, starting from a place of inspiration. And then of course you reach a place where it's like, all right, now I have to figure out the last 30 pages so I know where I'm writing to, but it's just a preference I have. And I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to write some stuff using that process that people have responded to, so.
2: Can I ask you this, Alan? Do you bounce off any specific people when you write television? Do you have a partner to bounce off with of ideas? And- In TV, I usually have a whole room of writers
1: and that's really necessary, I think. Although a lot of places now are doing it where one writer writes every episode and they've been doing it that way in England forever. But I I need a, a room of people. I need a lot more brains that are smarter than me to sort of do that brainstorming with.
0: Do you have someone who's your sounding board for features?
1: I've had the same agent for over 20 years, and he's really a good resource. I have friends who are writers that I will give things to to sort of get their feedback.
0: When you were writing, did you know you were going to direct? And if so, was there like writer's hat and then director's hat? Or were you writing knowing how you wanted to direct Uncle Frank?
1: I knew I wanted to direct Uncle Frank. I tend to do directing as I write. I'm very specific about visuals and letting a story unfold visually. I even wrote American Beauty that way. A lot of American Beauty, the visuals were written in, but I didn't think I would be directing it. And I really lucked out and had the perfect director for that. It's not so much that I want to direct because I don't think anybody else can get it right or can serve the story. It's because I really like it. It's so much fun. I love the collaboration. I love working with actors. I love working with the DP. So it's kind of just selfish. It's like, well, I want to do that.
0: I think that's perfectly allowed.
1: (laughs) But I've been very fortunate in having other directors direct my work, both American Beauty and all the TV shows that I've worked on. And they've done amazing jobs.
0: Steven, you've worked with a bunch of people who have written and then directed their own script. The Coen Brothers a bunch of times, Dodgeball with Ross and Marshall Thurber, Idiocracy and Office Space with Mike Judge. Is there a different feel that you can get from the director when the script itself has come from them
2: well certainly with the cohen's you know exactly what you're going to do because they love the storyboard and they have exactly what they have in mind not meaning that they don't let you do your take and play but they're very specific in what they want to do because they are kind of on the brain and i so enjoy working with them love working with them because they are the epitome of a twist you know it's like you're going to go somewhere else so i love that with them with the comedies it's always you hope to be able to work With this person that has the same sensibility that you do, you know, and certainly Mike Judge is a god in terms of that. Because we were together for 13 years on King of the Hill. That's a long time to be with a group. So it's very easy and short speak with him as well. And Ben, I've worked with a couple of times, Stiller, and love to bounce stuff off with him. But he's very specific about what he wants as well. So as long as somebody knows what they want to do, I'm good. I like to be directed. Tell me what you're looking for, and I'll give you my best gut of that. I really love to be directed.
0: Can you pinpoint one of the better directions you've gotten in your career?
2: (laughs) Mario Saletti in the National Shakespeare Company. I was doing The Clown and Winter's Tale. I finished the scene. I was really happy. And he came over and said, wonderful, wonderful, 90% less. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best direction I ever got. (laughs) Okay, you want to ground it in reality? Oh, okay, fine. You want to do that. (laughs) So that was my most favorite one of that.
0: Alan, do you have a favorite way to direct or to verbalize what you're feeling and how to get that across to your actors?
2: Not really. I feel like part of
1: the job of the director is to determine how an actor likes to get direction it's a very intimate relationship because you're asking these people to be incredibly vulnerable and go places while a camera's pointed at them. So part of the job for me is just to figure out what is the best way to communicate? What do they like? Do they like direction? Do they? It's just figuring out what is the right fit in terms of communication with each particular actor. Because every actor has their own process and they're all different and they all work. And it's just sort of being respectful of that and trying to be open to learning exactly what that is.
0: Speaking of process, Stephen, I am so curious, how do you create your characters? Because they are so intricate in so many different ways. Do you kind of start outside in, inside out?
2: That depends on the thing. I mean, I like mostly to start inside out, but sometimes you'll get a pair of boots and you'll go, that makes it for me. He stands like this, you know, and that's because of these boots. And then you kind of layer on top of that. So it really depends on the thing. But I like to start in and think that If the script is good enough, if you're working on the script and you love the script, it's in there. You just have to rehearse. As a theater actor, I like to rehearse. You don't get much chance in film and TV. But if you do, you know, I I like to go inside out.
0: When you're doing voice work, is it a different process in how you create those characters?
2: Not really, because you're still doing the character physically, you know. And when I'm doing anything, I'm still doing it. I'm becoming the character. So what you have to do in voice work for me is just be really specific with how you want to do it. You'd maybe be more specific than you would on camera because you're free to move around, but you're not locked into <laughs> a bodily motion. But yeah, it's not any different. If I'm doing a baby in a, an animated thing, or I'm I'm oh, man. I'm still the character. I'm still doing the character outwardly. So that's
0: not any different for me. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today today, like I'm magic extended a from her fingertips down to the you base You have to take of care
2: smile. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me,
0: every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams.
2: Her fingers were facing me.
0: You can feel like your purpose and your
2: worth is really being You're questioned. to stop me from playing the piano. She
0: buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't
2: love humans. We never did, we never will, we just find The beauty that are... of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you.
0: And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. I'd love to hear from each of you about where you find inspiration for how you create, if there's any external mediums you use or conversations you hear, anything that you kind of take from the outside world and apply to your craft.
1: I personally find things that trigger ideas anywhere. Surfing the web, driving to Whole Foods. There'll be something I see, a character on the street.
2: Listening to a conversation. Exactly, exactly. Life stuff, because all character actors just grab when they hear so, Oh. I'm going to use that later on. Yeah. That's exactly what it
1: is. I listen to music too. When I'm writing, I create specific playlists. And for Uncle Frank, I had a lot of 70s music, all this great music that we could not afford to put in the movie. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I find that music is really important to me when I actually sit down at the computer and I start to write.
2: For Barry, Henry Winkler, almost every tape will have music, all the way up until they go, the sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that will take it down, but he's very music-oriented.
0: That's really interesting. So when you're writing, Alan, what's the process of you hearing the conversation as it's going, or how do you know that it's flowing in the way that you want it to flow? Do you read it aloud, or can you hear it in your head as you're writing it?
1: Sometimes I say the lines aloud. I'll have the conversation. I'll read it as I'm taught, you know. But for the most part, I just hear it in my head. And then there's always, you know, I do what I call the vomit pass, which is you just get the whole thing out on paper or in a file, and then you go back and then you start to take stuff out. Also, because I started out as an actor, I find that when I'm writing, I'll be playing the part in my head, and I'll take my own personal performance choices and put them in the stage directions. <laughs> and then I always have to go and make sure I take those out. I'll write something like, he stares at the sky and then looks at his hands. <laughs> in my head, I was playing the scene, and it was very moving, but then I see it on the, on the paper, and I'm like, mm, that doesn't mean anything. So I have to take those
2: out. But writers who actually say the words out loud are very appreciated by actors because there's some writing where it may look great on the page, but a human being wouldn't say it.
0: Before we run out of time, I want to talk really quick about Paul Bettany, who plays Uncle Frank. Such a beautiful job. So I just want to hear what it was like working with him and finding that character with him. I know you're directing, you kind of let him go, but what was the process like with him?
1: It was lovely. He's a lovely human being. He's such a gentleman and such a pro. And he really loves what he does. He loves acting. He loves the work. I had had a pretty extensive conversation with him on the phone prior to us working together, but then I didn't hear from him for months. And then all of a sudden we were in North Carolina and we were going to be shooting it. And we had two days of rehearsal with him and Peter and Sophia. And we basically just sat around a table and read through the script and talked about it. But he had done all the work. And I remember the cinematographer was shooting a camera test. He just shot a still photograph of Paul in costume with his mustache and his glasses and smoking a cigarette. And I remember seeing that photograph and going, that's him that's the first time i've seen the character and that is him totally you know the story was personal for him in a lot of ways as well and it was just a purely great experience
0: is it possible to put into words what it's like having your script come to life by these actors and seeing it actually play out
1: it's always exciting you know it makes me think of field of dreams and like if you build it they will come I used to get excited when I was working on sitcoms and we would go down for the run through and there would be new sets that had been built for a scene that you wrote that takes place in a ski lodge. That's always been exciting to me. and It's still exciting to me to hear amazing actors that I've had the good fortune to work with say words that I wrote and bring them to life in a way that is different than I ever thought and better than I ever thought. And I feel so fortunate to be able to make a living doing this and to be a part of that process.
0: Through both of your careers, which are so established, are there any challenges that you still face or things that you still fear in the work that you create?
2: I learn something every day on a set, no matter what. I just did HBO's Harry Mason. Working with Matt was a, an acting lesson every day. He was unbelievable. To be able to play with John Lithgow and watch how he works. Or the DP is unbelievable. And you go, I just want to look at the monitor all day. So I learn something every day that I'm on a set. I don't think there's any way that you... Can be in this business and not learn every day.
0: What about you, Alan? Anything that you fear that's a challenge?
1: One thing that happens is whenever I finish a script, I'll go through it and I'll make sure there's no typos and I'll read it several times and I'll think this is the best thing I've ever written. And then I'll send it off to my agent and immediately I'm like, that's a piece of shit. (laughs) I just gave him the worst (laughs) script that's ever been written. Oh my God. I'm always struggling with feelings of like, I'm an imposter, I don't really know what I'm doing, and that's just bullshit that exists in my head that I just have to live with. But I agree with Stephen, you learn every day. I think if you ever get to a point where you feel like I know everything there is to know, you're totally screwed. Yeah, it
2: shouldn't be doing it no more.
0: What did you guys learn from Uncle Frank? It's not that I learned something new, but it was a
1: reinforcement of something that I've known, which is when you're really doing it just because you really believe in something and you feel like what you're doing is meaningful and you love the people you're working with and you have such respect for them. It's not a job. It's just a pure joy. And you don't always find yourself in situations where that's possible. When you do find yourself in that position, you just really try to savor it.
0: Do you remember the first time that you found yourself in this position of like, I'm here, I can stop stressing about it not being the career I want, but it is the career I have, like that I've made it. Do you remember that feeling?
2: No. (laughs) (laughs) No. For me personally, I'm never happy with everything. So I'm just still trying to get it right and enjoying trying to get it right.
0: Do you have a process for getting out of your head when you're overthinking the things you've done?
1: I meditate. I'm trying to train myself how to turn off trains of thought so that I can do it when they're not particularly healthy or constructive. It's a process. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not something that I've even remotely come close to mastering. But that's one way I try to deal with stress.
0: Have you guys heard of the term steal like an artist? Steal
1: like an artist?
0: It's basically you steal like an artist because you're so inspired by everyone. You kind of take and make from your inspirations.
1: Yeah, I get that concept.
2: Absolutely.
0: I would be curious to know who do you steal from and who do you look up to?
2: Warner Brothers cartoons for timing. (laughs) I grew up with and all the great character actors from the 30s and 40s that I got to see on the 3 O'clock movie when I was growing up. I didn't know that until later, but a lot of timing things I would learn from these guys who had done vaudeville. They would never changed their acts because in vaudeville, you had to do the same act every day and their timing was impeccable. But I think if you don't have some innate time, it's not something you can learn. I think you have to have some of it
0: and then you can refine it. What about you, Alan? Any inspirations?
2: You know, I
1: was in high school in the early 70s, and that's when I really started to become sort of my own version of a cinephile. And there was such a great time for American movies, but especially the movies of Robert Altman were really, really inspiring to me. I get inspired by songs. There are some songwriters like Tom Waits or Bruce Springsteen who tell stories in their songs that I think are amazing. I'm super inspired by Tennessee Williams when I was a kid. I read all of his plays and watched all the movie versions of his plays. And the first actual professional stage play I saw was Cat on a Tin Roof. There's a little bit of Big Daddy and Daddy Mac. Yeah.
0: So I always ask the same question to close, and it's my favorite question to hear from artists. What does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling?
1: I don't know what I would do if I didn't. I think I might go crazy. <laughs> because it feels like home. The need to be a part of storytelling is something that's just built into me and I feel super grateful that I'm able to have a life that is in storytelling.
2: How about you, Stephen? Yeah, I feel the same way. I have no other marketable skills for one thing. <laughs> but I've always felt even from the time I was a kid, I've always felt like I observed the world rather than just going through it. I kind of observed as a cameraman. I'm not an outsider looking in, but I feel as if this is something I should be doing. After a while, I felt it's something I should do because you were given this set of skills by whoever. And I felt like that since very early on. And I did it through photography when I was in high school and I did it through music and then it focused into theater. So I've always felt I should be doing what I should be doing.
0: Uncle Frank comes out November 25th on Amazon Prime. Alan Ball, Stephen Root, thank you so much for joining me today. I, again, I'm such a fan of both of yours. And it's really been an honor to be able to talk to you. So thank you.
2: Very much. Well, very thank you. Much. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's
0: okay. <laughs> Good timing. What's <All> right. <laughs> well, it's been nice
1: talking to you, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kirkcom Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guests Alan Ball and Stephen Root, edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. (laughs) Kurt Co Media, media for your mind.